Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I'm joined by my co-host, Louis Aboot also. Louis, welcome. Pleasure as always. Thank you. And today I'm joined by our guest from Omniax, co-founder of Omniax, John Burnett. John, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're really interested and excited about this conversation because we have had a few guests on the show that have brought an institutional perspective about the crypto markets and the general ecosystem, but I, I don't think we've talked institutional uh, in a while. Maybe in our Q1 wrap-up, Louis, we we touch on a lot of more more high-level, mm. influential market movie things on the podcast, but generally, we've been sticking to a lot of like DeFi projects recently, so uh, this perspective is going to be really, really interesting because um, this institutional narrative... Maybe it's not as dominant in San Francisco, but basically everywhere else, Chicago, New York, it is the dominant narrative. So I think it'll bring a lot of perspective to the audience. Uh, before we get into it, can you give us like a one second, I'm sorry, one sentence <laughs> <laughs> description of OmniX, just so uh, to serve as context for the, for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so OmniX is uh, an investment and trading platform specifically for crypto assets and specifically for the institutional investor. Cool. And uh, this is why you have a good purview of the institutional space. That's right. And, you know, I wouldn't count out the West Coast, actually. Um, you know, we have a number of clients on this coast that are, um, in fact, very sophisticated. Awesome. I uh, <laughs> hope uh, Wire is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Cool. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, let's yep. talk about your background, how you got into crypto and, you know, what uh, what the early formative days of OmniX were like. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, for me, this is really exciting because obviously it's the first time um, starting a company. You know, before OmniX, uh, I was leading all blockchain and crypto globally for State Street Bank. Um, so, you know, a 225 year old financial institution, you know, trying to push uh, the boundaries of uh, what they could be doing with some emerging technologies. Um, specifically, I joined there in 2015. You know, I think at that time, enterprise blockchain was much more palatable to uh, the major banks and to State Street's top clients. But I think what was interesting was about a year into that, we realized that the institutional investors were taking crypto much more seriously. We viewed that very much as an inflection point, um, and we knew that they were missing a lot of the tools in the marketplace to be able to invest and trade the way they're used to for other asset classes. So myself and my two other co-founders, Hugh Leong and Kamel Mokadem, saw this as an opportunity that we were uniquely suited to go after, and so we jumped out and, and started OmniX at that time. Before that, um, my entry into crypto was in 2013. Uh, I was with American Express in New York and led their first deep dive into Bitcoin. And was that when you launched the company? Sorry, what year was that? that oh, sorry. That was uh, towards the end of 2017. Right. Okay. okay. Right at the peak. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the, the opportunity that you saw back in 2017, uh, obviously, there was a view that there was a trend of a new market participant entering mm -hmm. the space and they needed certain tools to you know, effectively operate. Uh, has the, those players entering the market, has that met your expectations in the subsequent sort of year and a half? Um, you know, it's, it's tough to say because at that time, I mean, I think, um, for folks that were in the space and had been in the space, we knew that this was a short term bubble in the, mm -hmm. in the asset class, right? And I think, you know, that had obviously a lot of benefits for the ecosystem overall. I think that really forced, all major financial institutions to, to take this much more seriously mm -hmm. and to come up that learning curve, which as we all know, can, can take a while for depending on the, on the type of person that you're talking to. But really it forced this conversation at the highest levels of major financial institutions. So I think, I think the, the subsequent uh, reduction in asset values likely has caused pause for some institutional investors, right? But I think ultimately they still have come up the learning curve and I think the interest is there. It's just that they have, you know, unique, uh, requirements, um, and they, uh, are going to take their time getting into something this new. So I, ultimately, I, I, I mean, our thesis has not changed. Um, I think, you know, our timeline probably, um, is a little bit more protracted, but mm -hmm. I think the institutional investment is coming. It's just going to be coming, you know, maybe not in one giant wave as everybody had been talking about in, uh, in 2017 and, and frankly, even in 2016 as well. Yeah. Yeah. So 2017, obviously very formative for crypto, like you uh, mentioned, the benefits are really awareness, right? Uh, institutions began having these early conversations. Uh, and I think 
the entire institutional space started uh, acknowledging that this is this has the properties of an asset class, mm-hmm. right? It's got uh, risk and return characteristics. Different, you know, in a portfolio has various different correlations to other asset classes. This is something probably you want to have an allocation towards in the in the future. Of course, the you know the price action. Uh, I think I think held back a lot of conversations or slowed down uh, the institutional entry in the market. But I think a lot of the different institutions have launched initiatives around crypto. What are the major institutions do you think that are playing in this space right now? Um, I mean, I think. So when we started the Emerging Technology Center at State Street back in 2015, um, you know, we were very focused on how we could leverage enterprise blockchain across with, within the bank, but ac- across the banks as well. And I think, you know, those same institutions that that were looking at just leveraging the technology are looking at this more from an asset perspective now as well. So, um, you know, the tokenization of equities and bonds and real estate and things like that. Um, you know, you look at like the utility settlement coin effort that's that's been kicked off by the banks. Um, you know, I think people are looking at this as um, much more from a tokenization perspective, perhaps, beyond just what uh, you could do in terms of you know, increasing transparency and reducing manual reconciliations and things like that, that, that were the initial focus um, areas for, for blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. Where Go do you ahead, see interest in the kind of, you know, your traditional crypto native bearer assets like Bitcoin as an investment product? Is that still a concept that you think eludes most of these uh, institutions? Um, is there any kind of change that you've seen in the perspective around those kind of products? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think ultimately the interest is going to be there. I think again, um, you know, the the price action moving down um, scared a number of folks away. I think mm-hmm. um, they they were initially interested in that, but I think really, you know, by focusing on some of these more palatable areas like the different uh, like like Facebook coin um, and 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 the JP Morgan coin and things like that, I think. Those are going to, those efforts are very, very good for the ecosystem. And they are going to be the entry point for a lot of these types of institutions to see the value of tokens representation represented on a decentralized application, you know, just from a, you know, efficiency perspective, uh, transparency perspective, cost reduction perspective. And I think ultimately that will cause them to look much more seriously and become much more comfortable with the existing crypto assets as they are today, Bitcoin, ETH, and on and on and on. It's also been interesting to watch um, Bitcoin kind of have a reverse correlation to right. uh, the US dollar and the CNY and everything like that over the past uh, couple of months. Thomas, I'm glad, I'm glad you've been looking at Omniax because we have our correlation and covariance matrix. On That's it. right. Yeah, it's <laughs> the first thing you see. Um, and this narrative is kind of arising of Bitcoin being the global macro hedge, right? So I'd love to see that. Uh, I'd love to see that narrative kind of expand in the in the future and see what, you know, if institutions are going to use it in that manner. That's yep. all really interesting. More to more to come there. So let's shift gears into OmniX for a sure. second before we get into uh, broader market topics. So we we described you described at a high level what uh, OmniX really is. It's really kind of a two sided platform as well because you know of course someone like a wire mm-hmm. uh, would use OmniX when they want to execute trades against counterparties we already have relationships with. Right. Correct. So let's say we have an account on uh, Coinbase, Kraken, and uh, Bitfinex, and so on and so forth. You can access those exchange relationships directly. Uh, you can view your balances on those exchanges uh, as well. You can also, uh, you know, let's say we have uh, OTC relationships with providers that are on your platform, desks that are hooked up into your platform, then we can also execute. Uh, trades with those counterparties as well. So there's various ways of... So that's why I think of it as a two-sided platform because there are these counterparties that are Mm -hmm. on your back end and that want to provide liquidity to uh, clients like us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we might be executing balance sheet trades, but we might also be making markets, right? We might be uh, taking the other side of a client's trade Mm -hmm. uh, and a principal sort of relationship and then interacting with the counterparty uh, through OmniX. How do you think about growing a two-sided platform like this, uh, does it start really from 
um, clients like like a wire bringing more wires on there, or is it more about getting more liquidity providers and counterparties uh, on there, or is it uh, is it a healthy marriage of the two? How do you think about growing that? Yeah, so first of all, that was a pretty good description. So I should bring you around to some uh, client conversations <laughs> I, uh, I'm having. Um, no, but I, I think you're right. I think um, ultimately we are providing a platform for both the buy side and the sell side. Um, I think, you know, really for us, it starts with the buy side because we provide the portfolio management, order management and execution management. And then some things on the settlement side that, you know, buy side clients would take for granted for other asset classes, but before we entered this market, didn't, didn't really exist for crypto, right? So the ability to come in and see all your assets that you're holding across all the different custody locations, um, where they reside, um, you know, instead of doing that on Google Sheets and Excel, which frankly was going on in, in, in early 2017. But then from there, of course, you know, order management, execution management. So being able to execute across, you know, 15 of the top exchanges, either going directly to each one instead of having, you know, 10 different windows open to, to, and swiveling back and forth to try to trade. Um, we enable you to do it from all one platform. Um, the algorithmic execution, I mean, that's really our sweet spot, right? I mean, that's our team's background, um, perfecting algos for decades for other asset classes and now bringing that to crypto. Um, on the OTC side, RFQ. For OTC, but then also, uh, we released a couple months ago, executable streaming prices. So, um, you know, the, the OTC provider is providing two-way pricing in an, auto, in an automatic stream, um, coming into our platform, looking almost like an exchange order book. So I think that's a pretty unique thing that we've added to this space. Um, but, you know, it's, so, you know, by solving a lot of the pain points for the buy side, um, and getting those clients, um, on as users, uh, it really entices the sell side to come on there to meet them. I mean, really, we're trying to take, Things from, you know, very manual approaches that, that existed, um, including obviously RFQ trading over Skype and Telegram and things like that, and just electronifying all of that and making it much more efficient for everybody involved. Yeah. So if a new client comes onto OmniX mm -hmm. uh, and they have zero counterparty relationships, including centralized exchanges, they have zero exchange accounts, zero uh, uh, desk that they're talking to. Doesn't OmniX help uh, obtain relationships for that client? We we can certainly help with that. You know, if you think about us, we're just that software infrastructure, right? Um, we're never counterparty. You're you're trading on your own accounts and you're trading on your own relationships with the OTC providers. So um, our clients have all of those. But if certainly if they're looking for introductions to expedite their applications with the exchanges, or if they're looking to connect with the specific OTC counterparties that we have already hooked up to our platform, we've done, we've done this in the past, hook, hooked up relationships and had, um, and streamlined it that way. So you guys are very much a, a pure play software Correct. company, right? Correct. So how does that business and operating model differ to something like Togomi or SFOX? Sure. Yeah. No, I, we, um, you know, when we embarked on this, I mean, we were very much of the opinion that there were going to be different players going after this space mm -hmm. um, and looking at it differently. And frankly, I think that's a very, very good thing. I mean, we want our customers to have choice. Um, and if there aren't multiple players going at this, then the market's not going to be big enough. It's not going to be interesting and big enough for anyone involved. Um, you know, but I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we are that software trading infrastructure. We are not a counterparty. You know, we more resemble like an Ez Castle or a BlackRock Aladdin or a Charles River to the prime brokerage model. Um, and, you know, ultimately, we feel and our, our clients feel that that is a better model for certain client segments. Um, you know, certainly the larger and or sophisticated. So I'm not saying large sophisticated. I'm saying large and or sophisticated because mm -hmm. some of the smaller sophisticated folks um, want our software trading infrastructure. And, and the reasons for that is, you know, they want control over their trading. They want to seek alpha the way that they're used to seeking alpha. They don't want the counterparty risk um, of having just one counterparty. So, you know, we, we provide that to them. So just taking a step back, just to, to simplify yeah. for our listeners that aren't really kind of into trading and sure. all of this, all of this stuff. So with something like Togomi or SFOX, they effectively act as a single counterparty. Correct. So while they might execute on a range of venues and OTC desks, they're the ones placing capital there and trading there. Exactly. And their customer basically trades with SFOX as the one counterparty. Correct. Whereas with your software, basically the user connects to all of their existing relationships through the software. Yep. And... Therefore, their counterparty risk, I guess, is more diversified. So, what, what, how do you think uh, large customers think about that counterparty risk? Is it better to have one counterparty that you know very well? You know, obviously, in crypto, there are a lot of exchanges you might not necessarily trust so much. 
uh, you might not understand the or have like the granularity on the balance sheet of different principal desks, what they're doing with their funds. There are definitely serious concerns to be had. Uh, how do you think large customers think about having one counterparty versus yeah. using software like yours and accessing everybody? Sure. Yeah, and I think um, I think this also speaks to the nascency of the asset, cl- asset mm-hmm. class, right? I mean, having to worry about um, the the different exchanges and things like that. Um, you know, I think those are problems that that will go away. And I think just the ability to be moving assets across the exchanges is going to become much more streamlined and everything like that. So I think I think that's a future state. But I think ultimately. It's a trade-off of counterparty risk. Whether you have one single counterparty, I mean, when, when, if you, if you think about you know the, the traditional markets, I mean, the larger and more sophisticated players don't just have one counterparty, right? They they do actually spread it around to different counterparties. So again, different models for for different um, types of clients based on their own client preferences. Right. Yep. And how do you see that? Uh, can you get into the specifics of the client profile uh, sure. between someone like a Tagomi who has an agency relationship with the client, someone's topping up? Uh, the Tagomi account and Tagomi is executing on as you kind of dictate versus, uh, you know, a relationship with a principle-based counterparty, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, and and some, something like an OmniX that aggregates principle-based counterparties. How do you see that client profile differ between those two? Do you think these same clients just use Tagomi and OmniX often? Yeah, I mean that that could be the case. I mean, I think um, I think there probably is um, client overlap between the two models. I mean, look, I I don't know who Tagomi's clients are in particular, um, but just in ter- in terms of that general model, um, you know, I'm sure there is going to be overlap between us. But again, I go back to um, you know, I think our users are the ones that that really want the control, mm-hmm. um, and they don't want just that single counterparty model. Um, so in terms of you know types of clients, you know, certainly the much more active funds. Um, the much larger funds are, are we, we view to be more inclined towards our model. And, and we've seen that in our customer acquisition that we've, we've had so far. Whereas I think for that prime brokerage model, that's very likely more of kind of the family offices, right? right? That are trading less frequently that just say, you know, I just want to get in for, for this amount of BTC. And, and, and that's really another, another difference between the two models is that if you are playing that prime broker model, mm. you're, subject to much more regulatory scrutiny. And it's a simpler model for someone like a family office who's not all in on crypto. Right. But but again, like so where I was going with the regulatory scrutiny is mm. it's, it's it's actually um far fewer assets that they're comfortable um sure. taking on yeah. uh, because you know it, it comes down to actually custodying and, and, and trading on behalf of those clients. And the other thing yeah. I guess is that Tagomi is like in terms of the fees per dollar traded, it's probably four or five times more expensive than something like OmniX. That that's consistent with what I've yeah. heard. Yeah. Yep. So the one point I wanted to bring up was with with an agency relationship. Well, with a principal relationship, there's often lines of credit that are involved because settlement happens post uh, trade, right? For example, if I'm requesting a quote from Circle. I'll request a quote. They'll execute the uh, trade that that hedges this position, so they can. Let's say I'm buying Bitcoin, right? I'm going to buy 100k worth of Bitcoin. I'll try to explain this a little bit better. When I hit up Circle for that quote, and they quote me, it's going to cost eight thousand dollars for Bitcoin, and I and I confirm the quote. They will buy the Bitcoin on my behalf at a cheaper price, so they can uh, make a little bit of spread, mm-hmm. right? And then at the end of day, we'll we'll do some end of day settlement with with someone like a circle, where uh, we would wire them a hundred k, and then they would send us uh, Bitcoin, right? But in that interim period of time, Circle basically and extended some sort of line of credit to uh, someone like a wire, right? With an agency relationship, you're topping up money into an account, right? That uh, someone like a Tagomi is executing on your behalf. So there's there's sort of uh, disadvantage, I guess, with uh, a principal relationship of having that line of credit, where um, a, a firm that you know is is making markets and wants to make markets beyond what their balance sheet can allow at certain moments, uh, you get that kind of flexibility, right? So for market makers, I think that principal relationship does make a lot of a uh, lot of sense. Uh, would you Would you generally agree with uh, what I said around the lines of credit? Yeah, and and um, you know. It's all governed by that relationship between the two counterparties, right? I mean, we, we are just the piping. So we're just linking up the two parties, um, and they trade how they're used to trading or how whatever SLAs are governed in the contract. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it just, it just main, it maintains that, that structure that they had previously. Yeah. The flexibility is, I think, just super important. Yeah. If you're in the market making business. Um, so one thing, speaking of the market making business, one thing that 
I was kind of shocked by when I joined the desk here at Wire, I, I guess this was early 20, 2018 or so, was that all of the OTC desks were communicating with each other on Skype and, you know, in all of the trades, post settlement, everything was just executed on, on Skype, right? Um, do you have any sort of like, do you think Omniax will ever have some sort of communication layer where you can talk directly to counterparties? Where, where do you see that communication sure. sort of trending in the future? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the chat function in, in a trading application has has fallen under scrutiny, right? <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, it not negotiating, you know, uh, cases of wine for, uh, for a better price and things like that. Um, so we actually opted away from having a chat function. Mm. Certainly... We're 100% client driven, right? So if, if it gets to the point where clients actually want to have a chat function or frankly, any other features, um, we, it's not hard for us to add that in. It's just, we, we haven't come across that yet. And I think people do like the just electronic trading more for now. Um, but you know, it is a different way than, than, than people had previously been doing in this industry. And I think whenever you're trying to change that, um, it, some people are comfortable in, with it and some people aren't. Like some people, some people like trading over Skype or Telegram, mm-hmm. but some people, you know, do it out of necessity. Yeah. Old, old habits die hard, right? Correct. Yeah. How has that conversation been going with getting potential counterparties to come onto the OmniX platform? Yep. Um, some of them just prefer to do it on Skype, right? Yep. And, the counterparty relationships they have that they're making markets with or for, they're in a very good spot and they're comfortable. They're getting a lot of flow. Uh, they don't, perhaps they don't see the value that something like a OmniX, uh, will add. What, what do you, what do you bring up in that conversation to, to drive that home to, to demonstrate that OmniX is really adding value? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, um, I mean, we, we, we add a lot of, I mean, I, I spoke to some of the value that we add for the buy side, right. But ultimately the real value for the sell side is going to be when we have, um, that critical mass of buy sides with regular flow, um, and, and, and particularly interesting flow. We see this just going the way that every other asset class has gone, right? You know, going from a single dealer platform to a multi-dealer platform like this. Um, and, you know, ultimately, um, we, th- we think that just providing more access and linking up more and more counterparties and building that overall ecosystem is going to be, uh, interesting enough for all the players to, to come on board, whether they come on right away or not. We, we've already signed on some of the top liquidity providers, uh, in the crypto space. Speaking of the different, uh, you know, building the ecosystem. Um, so, you know, uh, prior to very late 2017, all kind of crypto, I guess we had the grayscale investment products, but basically all other products around crypto were very kind of crypto native, right? So you had the spot crypto exchanges. And some kind of crypto native unregulated derivatives, whether it's OKCoin or BitMEX, et cetera. Uh, how do you guys think about integrating with, you know, for instance, CME and backed? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that done? Is that definitely something that you guys are doing? What are the sort of more traditional uh, venues that you think are going to be bringing products to the market? And will you be uh, headfirst into all of that? Yeah. And, you know, it, it really comes down to, whatever our clients are looking for, right? So that, that's how we approach adding different spot exchanges. That's how we approach, you know, convincing the sell side to come on. Um, we, tr- we try to provide any venue, any destination that is of interest to our client base. So, um, you know, whether that's CME or backed when it, when it finally gets going or, you know, CCX, um, you know, a lot of these different, uh, venues that are starting up now or that are more traditional venues that are offering assets uh, that our clients are going to want to trade, we'll just plug into them. It's 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 really that simple. Um, you do know, you have CME on there now? We do not have them on there right, right. now. Is that, is that because of a lack of interest or what, what's the... Um, it's... I mean, I frankly, I don't know. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> no. um, I noticed the volumes yeah. have been going up, right? Uh, yeah. Just in the last few months. Uh, and I was wondering if you were seeing a trend basically away from the crypto native products more into that sort of thing. Uh, or is it too early, basically? Um, I think it's too early yeah. to say, yeah. Yeah. One of the uh, biggest value adds of OmniX is, of course, the trade execution algorithms that you provide when you hook up like different mm-hmm. centralized exchanges. Direct mar- There's direct market access, right? When you want to just execute uh, limit orders or market orders directly onto any order book that you already have a relationship with, let's say it's on Coinbase. Then you also have a, a lot of different algorithms that mm-hmm. you've developed uh, that can execute 
on those centralized exchanges, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to give the audience a high-level overview of, of that suite of, of different algorithms that a sure. client can use? Yeah. So we 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 view the algorithm suite as as a toolkit for our clients, right? Um, you know, they, they define whatever strategies they 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 want to use and they decide when they want to trade. Um, and we basically provide this toolkit so that they can get in or out of the market. Uh, you know, as efficiently as possible. So finding, finding that best execution through the market. So all of our algos can be run across the top 15 exchanges, which we already connect to. Um, so just at a very high level, I mean, you know, from, from simplicity, smart order router, TWAP, VWAP to more complex, like a spread compression algorithm, a passive pegger, a synthetic iceberg. If you really want details on any of those last three, you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> I would need to, uh, I would need to loop in our, our, our tech guys on that. But, you know, ultimately we try to provide a lot of different flexible types of algorithms, um, also providing different parameters so that they can enter in at the time of trade so they can enter in what they want that, how they want that algorithm function and everything like that. And we're going to be continuing to build on that as we go along. I mean, again, that's, that's really where our, um, our expertise comes in from the FX and commodities space. Um, and, and we believe that, that, that crypto trades very much like FX and, and commodities. And so this, that's the relevant experience to bring to the table on this. So you, you do a lot of business development for OmniX, right? Correct. So how do you go around kind of pitching those tools and the efficacy of them? How do you sort of explain to the user, you know, can you provide some benchmarking data or like, how does that work? Especially if they're kind of your typical, you know, sort of crypto fund or something, they might know a lot about crypto. They might not necessarily know a lot about algorithmic execution. How does one go about evaluating a product like that? That's That's a really great question. You know, I, I really try to lean on our CTO um, mm. to do a lot of that because a lot of it does, to your point, it does come down to education. Um, whether they're familiar with crypto um, or or trading or both, um, they, they still benefit from understanding exactly how we created the, these algorithms, how they function and what the right use cases are um, to apply each one of them. The, the great point that you hit on is actually performance. And so, you know, we've spent the bulk of our team's um, effort on on that part of the side, on the execution part of the part of the house. So we have we have you know developers for you know portfolio management and order management, but we have a, a whole team dedicated toward the execution management side. And we've really spent a good amount of time over you know for for the bulk, frankly, of 2018, mm-hmm. just focusing on having the absolute best connectivity to the exchanges because as you guys know a lot of these exchanges just fall down all the time, right? And so creating very secure connections, um, focusing on the reliability, focusing on the monitoring so that if something happens with the exchange, we're able to diagnose it immediately and, 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 and make adjustments on our side to be able to account for it. So on the connectivity side, that's been a major focus for 2018, as well as the algos. And now that we've built all that out, we're now um, doing much more of the exact type of research that you're talking about. I mean, mm. first and foremost, we just wanted to make everything ironclad and make the algos as the absolute best that we could instead of doing, you know, so much um, analysis on the end result. We wanted to focus on the actual functionality first. And so now we've actually carved out um, some of our team's time to actually prove that because it's one thing for us to say, it. I mean, we believe we have the best execution in crypto, period. But actually having the data and analysis to support that, mm-hmm. um, that, that's one thing that we're working on right now just to make sure, you know, to try to have as objective view of it as possible. And can a user bring their own algo to your platform? They can. Yeah. They can. So, you know, and not to get too technical here, cause, you know, I mean, my, uh, my, my technical degree is, is a, a little out of date, but, um, kidding. I don't have any technical degree. <laughs> um, no. So there, there are two main ways that you can access our system. You can, you be a full system user where you're using the full GUI and getting all the portfolio management features and order management features features and everything that comes along with that. Or, you know, our execution management system is built in C++, hosted in NY5 in Secaucus, New Jersey, built for microsecond latency, cross-connected to Jump, cross-connected to Gemini, all of that. And, and, and that's where, so that's where all the connectivity to the exchanges and that's where all the al- algos reside as so well. So you're co-located and your Correct. algos are co-located Correct. with, and is that only those kind of more US domestic exchanges or can you do that with Offshore exchanges in offshore data centers. Yeah, so I mean, I, great point. Um, I mean, we we've basically built our system is built for the the future of when when you know everyone has a physical data presence. But yeah. in the meantime, we do the best with with what's out there um, on on the other side, right? right? 
but where I was going with that is in order for people to run their own algos. So I, every, everything that we've built is, is accessible via, fi- via fix API. Mm. Um, so people can just go straight to our fix API and run their own algos and everything like that. So it's, it's a very modular system for, for different. And frankly, I mean, it, it speaks to the different types of clients, right? We have some of the more, you know, asset manager type clients that, that really want a lot of the portfolio management features. And then we have just the much higher frequency type guys that, that want to go straight to our EMS mm. um, and aren't worried about all that other stuff. Have you found that the, you know, like there, there are lots of different ways that you can break down the institutional world, right? Uh, but if you just think about your kind of your market makers, like uh, Jump or whoever it is, like who, who, what were the kind of institutions that first showed interest in crypto? Like I understand that there are like hedge funds and quant funds from the traditional space or like Chicago prop shops now trade here. There are all the liquidity providers like Jump. Like, what would you say that the the first market entrants were? What was the kind of what's happened over 2018 and early 2019? What do you see as like the next kind of customer that you're going to see? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I think you hit it on, on the head, right? I mean, a lot of these um, quantitative guys were going after the volatility. Um, a lot of the crypto-specific funds, whether they were um, just folks that were very focused and educated on crypto or they were just from the traditional world, but they had a, a strong interest in crypto, you know, they very much dominated kind of the 2017, 2018 timeframe. And I think what we've... And, and what was interesting during that timeframe as well was we were getting a lot of inbound from traditional asset managers and pension funds, um, people that we weren't expecting to be having conversations with that early. Now, again, I think they've taken pause, but again, they've also come up the learning curve. So I think they they will be there. Um, I just think that they came and they they realized that it might just be a little bit early. But what's interesting is I think particularly over the last six to nine months, I would say the funds, the inbound and the and the introductions, because I mean, a lot of we've really, from a client acquisition perspective, it's, it's been very organic, right? I'm, you know, it's been through relationships that we had, given that we've been in institutional crypto for a while now, but then also just a ton of inbound to our website. And what's interesting is over the past six to nine months, it's been, you know, funds that are on the smaller side, but that are much, that are very, very sophisticated. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really encouraging for the entire industry. And when you say sophisticated, yep. what do you mean exactly? I mean, coming from, you know, decades of trading other traditional asset classes from some of the top, um, institutions in the world, you know, and, and to your point before on, on what's education versus how much, how much of my time is spent educating, um, people on the algos and things like that. You, you say spread compression, I'll go to them and then I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. right? So, so there's, there's just a, a very high level of sophistication coming out. So I'm not sure what kind of data you get as a result of running this software in mm-hmm. terms of how people use it and the trends around that. But I'd be interested to know whether uh, certain execution models have become more popular over time as the space has matured. Like, do people trade using the algos more or do they trade using the the streaming otc quotes more or like uh what are the kind of trends you see in how people trade or even what people trade in terms of assets uh where people trade are there certain uh exchanges that you see do a lot of the volume with your kind of customer profile Uh, anything around that i think would be really interesting so we get that question a lot and uh you may not like the answer that I'm going to give you, but <laughs> it, the answer is it depends. Yeah. Um, it really depends on the type of client. But but then even within each individual type of client, we see a ton of variation. I mean, it's it's really interesting. You you would think you'd have, um, you know, two players that look very very similar, um, but one has decided they only want to trade OTC, and the other has decided they only want to trade exchange. We've been very fascinated by the fact that you know. The different approaches that people take aren't necessarily consistent with who that, who that, what, what bucket that player actually falls into. Um, and that applies to the venues they're executing on, the methods through which they're executing, uh, all the assets that they're trading. Um, it really has been a mixed bag. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the big thing, um, recently on, on, in like the Bitwise report and stuff like that is, is the, is the fake exchange volumes and everything like that. And I think that's probably dissuaded some people from, from trading more on exchanges, but frankly, they shouldn't. They shouldn't have been surprised by that anyway. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the, the exchanges that you've got integrated. You said you had 15. how many? Fifteen. 15. So, so yeah, presumably, correct. I mean, fourteen out of fifteen of those probably don't fake volumes, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 And 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 frankly, that's probably why um, a lot of our clients are saying they're only trading on on exchange right now. Yeah. 
So. Yeah. And a lot of this flow, even if you're accessing it through a Chicago prop shop venue, it does ultimately end up on uh, right. these exchanges. There's, there's not like, there is an inter-dealer market between the OTC desks. They're, you know, flipping around risks like it's a hot potato uh, trader trader, but it's not as big, I think, as the media sometimes makes it out to be. That being said, I do want to ask you more about this narrative about the Chicago prop shops, like uh, really getting into crypto. I think we saw it first with DRW and their Cumberland arm. Uh, you know, they've been knocking around in the space forever, right? Like 2013, 14, 15, something like that. And then we saw this uh, influx of new, well, old school uh, Chicago prop shops, but newly entering the crypto, uh, the burgeoning crypto market in late 2017, 2018, that's Jump, DB Trading, Akuna, all of those guys. How do they like to interact with OmniX? I think it has a lot to do with the ESP feature mm -hmm. that you yep. uh, launched. What's that feature all about? And wh why do they like to interact with OmniX in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, these, these guys want to be able to provide liquidity wherever they can, right? And so that's where, you know, our clients, our buy side clients um, are interesting to them. And I think, you know, now that we've released executable streaming prices, which again is, is a two-way stream coming in from those OTC counterparties that, that can provide that, it's just, it's much easier for them, right? They don't have to sit there responding to RFQs coming in from the clients. They can actually just provide their pricing. Um, and if somebody wants it, they can lift it right from there. Um, so by releasing ESP over the past couple months, um, we've been able to bring on more and more folks and they just, they just go straight to our fixed API. Um, and they can put in the pricing and, and our buy sides can just see that coming in like, like an exchange order book. Um, so it, it really is, it, it has been met with a lot of great, uh, response from both buy side and sell side. Yeah, the ESP feature is just really, really slick. I think you know Thank if you're you. if you're a, a traditional trader from you know Wall Street or something, you're used to seeing yeah. uh, uh, tools like this. But in in crypto, I think it was the first time I saw this. It's it's cool if you if you want a price stream from uh, you know you're hooked up to Jump and their investors, so yep. we can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to see a price stream from Jump for 250 Bitcoin on both sides, you can display that and they're always providing you a price where you can execute which is really amazing 20,000 ether like what whatever you kind of want and that's that's what is that's the kind of size that these guys want to deal with and it's really interesting that they're providing liquidity like that and it just kind of speaks to how the whole market has been developing mm -hmm. market structure has been changing quite a bit uh, since these Chicago prop shops decided to uh, be more interested in in providing liquidity there's also other um, structural changes that have been happening like BitMEX and uh, BitMEX, you know, has, has been taking substantially more volume over the past couple of years. How do you, how do you see this kind of coalescing into better market structure? And yeah. where do you see that uh, is heading in the future? What, what other, uh, what other like factors uh, are there other than, you know, the Chicago prop shops coming into town, BitMEX uh, arising that is contributing to uh, to better market structure and better, more efficient markets in crypto? Yeah, I think it's it's overall, it's just, it's the fact that all of these traditional type of folks are entering this space. I mean, you know, th that's, that's just good for the entire, entire ecosystem. So, you know, we tried to create, you know, from our little, little spot in the world, um, we tried to create a, a trading infrastructure that people are used to, but with, you know, a completely updated look and, and, and feel and everything like that. And I think with the sheer amount of, Institutional experience and dollars um, and in investment dollars into this the, the infrastructure side of of trading and investing in crypto assets, it's it's been tremendous over the past couple of years, and that is fundamentally what's going to be required for the actual uh, institutional investors and traders to be able to come in. So I, I don't know how to answer it other other than that, other than the fact that I, I just think it's it's really encouraging. You know, when you go to the trading show Chicago, right? I mean, the the, the fact that it was. 40% crypto for the first time um, in its history is 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 really encouraging and I you know they're they're also doing shows in in New York and and Europe and everything like that and so just the the fact that crypto is is creeping more and more into these types of conferences you know last week I was in LA for the CFA organization's first portfolio conference uh, and I was on a panel with uh, Jeff Dorman from ARCA, Sandra Rowe um, from the Global Blockchain Business Council, and a UCLA professor who's focused on uh, blockchain and crypto as well. And it's just, it, it really, I mean, it, it just makes it very clear that, that well, 
we all in the space knew that it wasn't going away. But I think what it's what it's proving to others that haven't been as connected to the space, they're they're starting to realize more and more that it's not going away. Every, everyone that I catch up with, you know, after having not seen them for you know a decade or something like that, um, I tell them what I've been doing, and they're like, "Oh, well, yeah, that, no, that's great. Crypto is not going away." You know, and it's like that was that's a much different response than I got, you know, five years ago when I was kind of first starting into this thing and they were saying, well, what, what's Bitcoin? What's crypto? What's, what's all this stuff about? What are you, what are you doing over there, John? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this actually segues perfectly into talking about institutional entry into the market. So we are seeing, like you mentioned, institutions starting to make markets in this space, like the Chicago prop shops. Uh, but we haven't seen a major Wall Street bank come in and offer this to their clients in a meaningful way. Maybe they, you know, someone like a Goldman might have done a couple uh, futures trades or something, but it's not in a widely public way where a lot of buy side uh, institutional clients are uh, accessing Goldman like that. The narrative used to be that, well, it still is sort of that this is an asset class. All, all the institutional allocators like endowments, foundations, and pension funds uh, will allocate uh, so that they, uh, you know, introduce this new asset class in their portfolio that has different correlations uh, yep. to other asset classes. It's uh, you got to do it or, or you know, some other pension fund is going to have a better return than you over time. And then it became all about custody, custody, custody being this big roadblock for institutions to come into this space. Now that there, there's like four different institutional custody solutions that work perfectly. Fidelity has one, Coinbase has one, yep. you name it, right? So why haven't the institutions, uh, I know price has a lot to do with it, uh, but why haven't the institutions come in a meaningful way yet? Is there something other than custody uh, on the infrastructure side that they're really waiting for? Well, it's... Th those solutions haven't been around for that long either, right? And I, I don't think it's just going to be okay. Um, you know, everything's solved now. Release the floodgates. Let's go. And 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 we want this yesterday, right? I think you know. Also, I think some of the FOMO in the market that was driving a lot of the interest in the major banks and everything like that, you know, in the beginning of 2018 has has subsided a bit as well. I think people are taking a measured approach. And I think, frankly, the asset class isn't big enough yet, right? Like they know that if they go and and place a large trade, which, you know, is defined differently in the traditional world than it is in, in crypto, that, that they just could they, they couldn't do that, right? They would they would just um, completely move the market. And um, so, I mean, that's part of it. And then, you know, I think we as an industry, we, we need to, to, to really have those use cases that take off and, and get to scale and everything like that. And mm -hmm. so from an infrastructure perspective, sure, you know, folks like us, folks like some of the other players that we mentioned, some folks on the, on the custody side, um, it, it is all falling into place, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that the floodgates can, can just go ahead and open at this point here's a question that you probably won't want to answer but i'm going to ask you anyway <laughs> those are the best kind yeah <laughs> has a single pension fund placed a trade on your platform to Oof. buy a crypto asset that is a great question um i'll just tell you no okay no um no uh we we have gotten inbound from pension funds directly but i think ultimately to look at the product oh yeah yeah but and, not and necessarily to trade something Correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, the intent was to, to yeah. get educated Eventually on it, to trade. be able to trade. But yeah. then I think, and that was, you know, I mean, that was probably nine months, nine or 12 months ago at yeah. this point. Yeah. So I think, I think more like 12 months ago when, when, when it was still so, but they are allocating. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first step is they're going to allocate to some of these guys that know what they're doing. And then ultimately they're going to be start, start directly getting involved as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my understanding of that. I mean, we've seen just the first drips of that kind of, uh, pension fund money into crypto funds, right? Correct. I don't think we've seen anything else really in that in that area. But uh, it'll be interesting to see where you get that tipping point, especially, dude, I kind of, I think, depends on how the adoption dynamics around Bitcoin versus other assets plays out. But it'll be interesting to see if we hit the tipping point or when we hit the tipping point where some of these investors really just take a position themselves yeah. in something like bitcoin with the intention to manage it relatively passively yeah and the thing is you know all the younger folks in all of these pension funds endowments and the banks and everything like that, you know they're all involved in it personally and so you know as they become more and more the decision makers over the 5 10 mm -hmm. 15 years from now 
they're they're already they're already bought in, right? And so they're going to be you know make, making the making the firm front running the pension funds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really a matter of when, not if. Right? I, I mean, like I said to lead off, right? Our thesis has not changed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it is coming. It's just a question of when 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 it's when people are going to be comfortable, and that's going to vary by the type of institution and the type of person within that institution. So how how big is OmniX in terms of headcount and how does that kind of divvy up between the different arms of the business? Sure. Yeah, we're uh we're about 20 people right now. Yeah. And we are about 70% dev. Right. Okay. And is that like in terms of people working on the algos or PMS and like how does that kind of break down roughly? Um the bulk has been focused on the EMS um, because that's really where we want to provide the most value, right? Again, making sure that the connectivity exchanges is 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 solid and reliable and flexible, and then you know making sure that our algos are just top in the business. Interesting, yeah. So so you guys are what around you said twenty, right? Yeah. And is that like uh, you know, for instance, I just looked it up. Then Scars will have around a thousand employees, right? And they're yeah probably serving every traditional market with this sort of software. Do you expect OmniX to be able to grow into a business that is that big? Or do you think it will be in terms of like the number of people involved? Or do you think it'll be structurally different as a result of being in crypto? Yeah. God, I, I can't wait to answer that question in five years. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I mean, we, we've really, as I kind of alluded to, like our, we, we've built this thing to be future ready mm-hmm. um, and, and, and scalable. And I think that's also a difference between taking a technology approach versus taking more of a agency prime brokerage approach. Yeah. Yep. Much, much more scalable on the technology side. Yeah. Before we started this discussion, John, you were talking about different uh, gateway drugs for institutions to come into the space. Do <laughs> you want to do you want to uh, talk about that to the audience? Your little yeah. little thesis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's funny because um, before coming on this podcast, my first one, by the way, so thank you. Um, yeah. I was listening to the one you guys did in Q1 uh, with with uh, with you two and, and Mike Dunworth, and um, it was funny because Mike mentioned. Facebook coin and some of these others as a gateway drug. And, th- and that's the same exact way that I describe it as well. When I was on the panel uh, for the CFA conference yeah. in, in LA on Thursday, I, I said the same thing. And I think ultimately, right, the, we, we know that the learning curve for crypto um, can be tougher for some people to get up than than others, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, things like the Facebook coin, the JP Morgan coin, things like, you know, further digitalization of securities and uh, real estate and, and things like that, those are all going to be gateway drugs for the major, major financial institutions that, um, you know, see the value in the transparency, speed, cost efficiency um, enabled by the underlying technology. So that'll be their, their entry point, right? They'll get involved in some of these other, you know, quote unquote, safer or, or, or politically safer areas of digital assets. But I think ultimately, once they do that, they're going to come around much more towards the existing crypto assets that are there today. And I think that is just, again, going to be positive for for all of us involved here. Yeah, you were talking about uh, tokenized real estate earlier, Mm -hmm. as well as potential gateway drug. The idea is that institutional investors are already buying these things in private equity wrappers or something that is just pieces of paper, right? Uh, Contracts that they're signing with GPs, essentially. The idea is that if they're tokenized versions of that, perhaps, perhaps you know, it's palatable. It's still the same investment, really. Uh, it's just that custody and things like that are, are probably something that they think about more, and the opportunity to have a much more liquid secondary Correct. trading market. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is yeah. some sort of value out there. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about. You guys are obviously very close to what's going on in the sell side market, right? So you talk to a lot of different OTC desks, uh, you know what they're up to, you know, perhaps what they're thinking about in terms of different products to offer to their clients and what they're making markets in. What are the coins that are being, you know, actively traded right now? If you asked me even 12 months ago, I would say there was a lot of EOS, right? That uh, OTC market makers are participating in. Um, then it became a lot of grin, uh, I think, by the beginning of this year or so. Uh, what's hot right now? What What's moving the market? You're not going to like my answer. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I... I can't really speak to that because that, I mean, that's, I can't really talk to like what's going on on the, on the platform. Um, so I don't really know how to, yeah. how to answer that. No <laughs> I, mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, um, 
you know, just in general, right? Maybe not just on the OTC side or anything like that, but in general, I mean, obviously stable coins, you know, have, have so far been the story of 2019. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that's one thing that I would say. And out of all of those stable coins, is there one stable coin that uh, is getting more volume in the OTC markets or generally in the markets that you're seeing? Probably Tether. <laughs> um, Traders love Tether because they love the volatility. They love trading the volatility. Yeah, I mean, again, I can't, I can't really speak to that. Okay. Um, what about, do you hear much about lending markets uh, picking up or that is a, a different product that these OTCD desks can approach? Uh, approach their clients with and yeah. is is there an opportunity for Omniex to totally. you know be be the technology layer over yeah, that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean again, we want to give um access to whatever products um and venues uh that our, our clients want to trade and and so you know, we've been in discussions with a lot of these different types of uh lending providers to mm-hmm. be able to uh to provide that through Omniex. And for like OTC lending, would your PMS be able to work out all right, I've borrowed, you know, a 100, you know, a million XRP from Genesis and short sold it there? And like, will your PMS be able to ingest the fact that I now owe Genesis XRP and that kind of all is demonstrated in the P&L? Um, you know, we haven't, we haven't come across that yet. Right. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's something that we could, we could work out. Mm. And do you guys look, I mean, obviously it's, it's very small and illiquid at the moment and probably not yet kind of adding value or relevant to your customer base. But, you know, we've, we've seen just in the last few months, some of the, trading volume on uh, decentralized exchanges finally starting to pick up, mm. whether it's uh, Uniswap or EtherDAI and things like that. You know, they, they might do uh, a couple of million dollars a day in volume. And for certain less liquid coins, they are actually the best venue to trade on. Do you, have you guys integrated with any of those solutions or not, looked at that much? Not as yet. I mean, yeah. I, that, that's still definitely early days. And I think that would raise even more questions for the institutional type of clients that we're, we're providing services to. But certainly to the extent that, that people become comfortable with those and that they become relevant to our clients, then, then we, would just go, we would go ahead and add them as well. Great, John. I think we've covered a ton of ground today. Of course, this audience is full of uh, devs and crypto entrepreneurs and different uh, employable people. Are there any jobs you want to advertise to them that OmniX is looking to make a run on? We're always looking for really good people, right? So if the way that I've described OmniX, um, you know, I, I think as I've mentioned to a lot of people that, that were outside of crypto that are trying to get in, um, I've, I've encouraged them to focus on the specific area that they really feel that they can, can dominate. And, um, you know, if, if from what I've described of our system and the type of clients, um, we're providing services to, if that seems relevant, please feel free to reach out to us directly. Um, and we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for joining, John. Where can people get in touch with you and, and talk to you about resumes they want to shoot over and any of the work that <laughs> yeah, just, um, Omnix is doing? You can, yeah. you can visit our website and, uh, and there's a way to contact us through there. But otherwise, you know, certainly at, uh, at various events, I mean, we, we, we try to go to all the good ones and we love, uh, we love meeting new people in this space. Awesome. Thanks yeah. again. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about Omniacs, check out the show notes included in your podcast and remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.